Chapter 4. Individuals, individuals. I have yet to see any problem, however complicated, which when you looked at it the right way, did not become still more complicated. Paul Anderson. A note about diagrams. Before we turn from social organization to biological organisms, I must briefly remark on various types of hierarchies and their diagrammatic representation. There have been several attempts to classify hierarchies into categories, none of them entirely successful, because unavoidably the categories overlap. Thus one can broadly distinguish between structural hierarchies, which emphasize the spatial aspect, anatomy, topology of a system, and functional hierarchies, which emphasize process and time. Evidently, structure and function cannot be separated and represent complementary aspects of an individual spatio-temporal process, but it is often convenient to focus attention on one or the other aspect. All hierarchies have a part within a part character, but this is more easily recognized in structural than in functional hierarchies, such as the skills of language and music, which weave patterns within patterns in time. In the type of administrative hierarchy we have just discussed, the tree diagram symbolizes both structure and function, the branches are lines of communication and control. The nodes, or boxes, each represent a group of physically real people, the department head, his assistants, and secretaries. But if we chart in a similar way a military establishment, the tree will only represent the functional aspect, because, strictly speaking, the boxes on each level, whether they are labeled battalion or company, will contain only officers or NCOs, the place the other ranks, which makes up the bulk of the battalion or company, is in the bottom row of the chart. For our purposes, this does not really matter, because what we are interested in is how the machinery is functioning, and the tree shows exactly that. It is the officers and NCOs who determine the operations of the holon as repositories of fixed rules and makers of strategy. But people who are inclined to think in concrete images, rather than in abstract schemata, often find this rather confusing. If, however, we wanted to emphasize the structural aspect of an army, we might draw a diagram, such as figure 4 below, which shows how platoons are encapsulated into companies, companies and battalions, etc. But such structural diagrams are clumsy and contain less information than the branching tree. Some authors put symbolic hierarchies, language, music, mathematics, into a separate category, but they might just as well be classified as functional hierarchies as they are produced by human operations. A book consists of chapters, consisting of paragraphs, consisting of sentences, etc., and a symphony can similarly be dissected into parts within parts. The hierarchic structure of the product reflects the hierarchic nature of the skills and subskills which brought it into being. In a similar way, all classifactory hierarchies, unless they are purely descriptive, reflect the process by which they came into being. Thus the species, genus, family, order, class, phylum, classification of the animal kingdom is intended to reflect the relations in evolutionary descent. Here the tree diagram represents the archetypal tree of life. Similarly, the hierarchically subdivided subject index and library catalogs reflects the hierarchic order of knowledge. Lastly, phylogeny and ontogeny are developmental hierarchies in which the tree branches out along the axis of time. The different levels represent different stages of development, and the holons, as we shall see, reflect intermediary structures at these stages. It may be useful to repeat at this point that the search for properties or laws which all these varied kinds of hierarchies have in common is more than a play on superficial analogies. 
It could rather be called an exercise in general systems theory, a relatively recent branch of science whose aim is to construct theoretical models and logically homologous laws, which are universally applicable in inorganic biological and social systems of any kind. Inanimate systems. As we move downward in a hierarchy which constitutes the living organism, from organs to tissues, cells, organelles, macromolecules, and so on, we nowhere strike rock bottom. Find nowhere those ultimate constituents which the old mechanistic approach to life led us to expect. The hierarchy is open-ended, the downward as it is in the upward direction. The atom itself, although its name is derived from the Greek for indivisible, has turned out to be very complex. Janus faced Holon. Facing outward, it associates with other atoms as it were in a single unitary whole and the regularity of the atomic weights of elements closely approximating to integral numbers seem to confirm the belief in that indivisibility. But since we have learned to look inside it, we can observe the rule-governed interactions between nucleus and outer electron shells, and of a variety of particles within the nucleus. The rules can be expressed in sets of mathematical equations which define each particular type of atom as a holon. But here again, the rules which govern the interactions of the subnuclear particles in the hierarchy are not the same rules which govern the chemical interactions between atoms as wholes. The subject is too technical to be pursued here. The interested reader will find a good summary in H. Simon's paper, which I have quoted before. When we turn from the universe in miniature to the universe at large, we again find hierarchic order. Moons go around planets, planets around stars, stars around the centers of the galaxies, galaxies form clusters. Wherever we find orderly, stable systems in nature, we find that they are hierarchically structured for the simple reason that without such structuring of complex systems into sub-assemblies, there could be no order and stability, except the order of dead universe, filled with a uniformly distributed gas. And even so, each discrete gas molecule would be a microscopic hierarchy. If this sounds by now like a tautology, all the better. It would, of course, be grossly anthropomorphic to speak of self-assertive and integrative tendencies in inanimate nature, or flexible strategies. It is nevertheless true that in the stable dynamic system, stability is maintained by the equilibrium of opposite forces, one of which may be centrifugal or separative or inertial, representing the quasi-independent holistic properties, the part, and the other a centripetal or attractive or cohesive force which keeps the part in its place in the larger whole and holds it together. On different levels, the inorganic and organic hierarchies, polarization of particularistic and holistic forces takes different forms, but it is observable on every level. This is not the reflection of any metaphysical dualism, but rather of Newton's third law of motion. To every action there is an equal and opposite reaction, applied to hierarchic systems. There is also significant analogy in physics to the distinction between fixed rules and flexible strategies, the geometrical structure of a crystal is represented by fixed rules, but crystals growing in a saturated solution will reach the same final shape by different pathways, i.e., although their growth processes differ in detail, and even if artificially damaged in the process, the growing crystal may correct the blemish. In this and many other well-known phenomena, we find the self-regulatory properties of biological holons foreshadowed on an elementary level. The organism and its spares. As we ascend to the hierarchies of living matter, we find, even on the lowest level observable through the electron microscope, subcellular structures, organelles, staggering complexity. And the most striking fact is that these minuscule parts of the cell function as self-governing wholes in their own right, 
each following its own statute book of rules. One type of organelles look as quasi-independent agencies after the cell's growth, others after its energy supply, reproduction, communications, and so on. The ribosomes, for instance, which manufacture proteins, rival in complexity any chemical factory. The mitochondria are power plants which extract energy from food by a complicated chain of chemical reactions involving some 50 different steps. A single cell may have up to 5,000 such power plants. Then there are centrosomes, the spindle apparatus, which organizes the incredible choreography of the cell dividing into two, and the DNA spirals of heredity coiled up in the inner sanctum of the chromosomes, working their own even more potent magic. I do not intend to wax lyrical about matters which can be found in any popular science book. I am trying to stress a point which they do not sufficiently emphasize or tend to overlook altogether, namely, that the organism is not a mosaic aggregate of elementary physico-chemical processes, but a hierarchy in which each member, from the subcellular level upward, is a closely integrated structure equipped with self-regulatory devices and enjoys an advanced form of self-government. The activity of an organelle such as in the mitochondrion, can be switched on and off, but once triggered into action it will follow its own course. No higher echelon in the hierarchy can interfere with the order of the operations laid down by its own canon of rules. The organelle is a self-law unto itself, an autonomous whole on with its characteristic pattern of structure and function, which it tends to assert, even if the cell around it is dying. The same observations apply to the larger units in the organism. Cells, tissues, nerves, muscles, organs, all have their intrinsic rhythm and pattern, often manifested spontaneously without external stimulation. When the physiologist looks at any organ from above, from the apex of the hierarchy, he sees it as a dependent part. When he looks at it from below, from the level of its constituents, he sees a whole of remarkable self-sufficiency. The heart has its own pacemakers, in fact three pacemakers, capable of taking over from each other when the need arises. Other major organs have different types of coordinating centers and self-regulating devices. Their character as autonomous holons is most convincingly demonstrated by culture experiments and spare part surgery. Since Carell demonstrated in a famous experiment that a strip of tissue from the heart of a chicken embryo will go on beating indefinitely in vitro, we have learned that whole organs, kidneys, hearts, even brains, capable of continued functioning as quasi-independent wholes when isolated from the organism and supplied with the proper nutrients or transplanted into another organism. At the time of writing, Russian and American experimenters have succeeded in keeping the brains of dogs and monkeys alive, judged by the brain's electrical activities, in apparatus outside the animal, and in transplanting one dog's brain into another live animal's tissues. The Frankensteinian horror of these experiments need not be stressed, and they are only the beginning. Yet spare part surgery has, of course, its beneficial uses, and from a theoretical point of view, it is a striking confirmation of the hierarchy concept. It demonstrates, in a rather literal sense, the dissectability of the organism, viewed in its bodily aspect, into autonomous subassemblies which function as wholes in their own right. It also sheds added light on the evolutionary process, on the principles which guided Bios in putting together the subassemblies of his watches. The Integrative Powers of Life let us go back for a moment to the organelles which operate inside the cell. The mitochondria transform food, glucose, fat, proteins, into the chemical substance adrenosine triphosphate, ATP for short, which all animal cells utilize as fuel. It is the only type of fuel used throughout the animal kingdom to provide the necessary energy for muscle cells, nerve cells, and so on. And there is only this one type of organelle throughout the animal kingdom which produces it. The mitochondria 
have been called the power plants of all life on Earth. Moreover, each mitochondrion carries not only its sets of instructions how to make ATP, but also its own hereditary blueprint, which enables it to reproduce itself independently from the reproduction of the cell as a whole. Until a few years ago, it was thought that only carriers of heredity were the chromosomes in the nucleus of the cell. At present, we know that the mitochondria, and also some other organelles located in the cytoplasm, the fluids surrounding the nucleus, are equipped with their own genetic apparatus, which enables them to reproduce independently. In view of this, it has been suggested that these organelles may have evolved independently from each other at the dawn of life on this planet, but at a later stage had entered into a kind of symbiosis. This possible hypothesis sounds like another illustration of the watchmaker's parable. We may regard the stepwise building up of complex hierarchies out of simpler holons as a basic manifestation of the integrative tendency of living matter. It seems indeed very likely that the single cell, once considered the atom of life, originated in the coming together of molecular structures which were the primitive forerunners of the organelles and which had come into existence independently, each endowed with a different characteristic property of life, such as self-replication, metabolism, motility. When they entered into symbiotic partnership, the emergent whole, perhaps some ancestral form of amoeba, proved to be an incomparably more stable, versatile, and adaptable entity than a mere summation of the parts would imply. To quote Ruth Sager, Life began, I would speculate, with the emergence of a stabilized triparatite system, nucleic acids for replication, photosynthetic or chemosynthetic system of energy conversion, and protein enzymes to catalyze the two processes. Such a triparatite system could have been the ancestor of chloroplasts and mitochondria, and perhaps of the cell itself. In the course of evolution, these primitive systems might have coalesced into the larger framework of the cell. The hypothesis is in keeping with all we know about the ubiquitous manifestation of the integrative tendency, symbiosis, and varied forms of partnership between organisms. It ranges from the mutually indispensable association of algae and fungi in lichens to the less intimate but no less vital interdependence of animals, plants, and bacteria in ecological communities, biokinesis, myokinosis. Where different species are involved, the partnership may take the form of commensalism, barnacles traveling on the sides of the whale, or of mutualism, as between flowering plant and pollinating insects, or between ants and aphides, a kind of insect cattle, which the ants protect in milk for their secretions in return. Equally varied are the forms of cooperation within the same species, from colonial animals upward. The Portuguese man-of-war is a colony of polyps, each specialized for a particular function, but to decide whether its tentacles, floats, and reproductive units are individual animals, or mere organs, is a matter of semantics. Every polyp is a holon, combining the characteristics of independent holes independent parts. The same dilemma confronts us on a higher term of the spiral, in the insect societies of ants, bees, and termites. Social insects are physically separate entities, but none can survive if separated from its group. Their existence is completely controlled by the interests of the group as a whole. All members of the group are descendants from the same pair of parents, interchangeable and indistinguishable, not only to the human eye, but also probably to the insects themselves, which are supposed to recognize members of the group by their smell, but not to discriminate between individuals. However, many social insects exchange their secretions, which form some kind of chemical bond between them. An individual is usually defined as an indivisible, self-contained unit with a separate, independent existence of its own. But individuals in this obsolete sense are nowhere found in nature or society, just as we nowhere find absolute wholes. 
Instead of separateness and independence, there's cooperation and interdependence, running through the whole gamut, from physical symbiosis to the cohesive bonds of the swarm, hive, shoal, flock, herd, family, society. The picture becomes even more blurred when we consider the criterion of indivisibility. The word individual originally means just that. It is derived from the Latin individus, as Adam is derived from the Greek atomos. But on every level, indivisibility turns out to be a relative affair. Protozoa, sponges, hydra, and flatworms can multiply by a simple fission of budding, that is, by the breaking up of one individual into two or more, and so on, ad infinitum. As von Bertolnaffy wrote, how can we call these creatures individuals when they are in fact dividua, and their multiplication arises precisely from division? Can we insist on calling a hydra or a turbellarian flatworm an individual? When these animals can be cut into as many pieces as we like, each capable of growing into a complete organism. The notion of the individual is, biologically, only to be defined as a limiting concept. A flatworm, cut into six slices, will actually regenerate a complete individual each slice within the matter of weeks. If the wheel of rebirth transforms me into a flatworm meeting a similar fate, must I then assume that my immortal soul has split into six immortal solons? Christian theologians will find an easy way out of the dilemma by denying that animals have souls, but Hindus and Buddhists have a different view. And secular-minded philosophers, who do not talk about souls, but affirm the existence of a conscious ego, also refuse to draw a boundary line between the creatures with and without consciousness. But if we assume that there exists a continuous scale of gradations, from the sentience of primitive creatures, through various degrees of consciousness, to full self-awareness, then the experimental biologist's challenge to the concept of individuality poses a genuine dilemma. The only solution seems to be, see chapter 14, to get away from the concept of the individual as a monolithic structure and to replace it by the concept of the individual as an open hierarchy whose apex is forever receding, striving toward a state of a complete integration which is never achieved. The regeneration of a complete individual from a small fragment of primitive animal is an impressive manifestation of the integrative powers of living matter. But there are even more striking examples. Nearly a generation ago, Wilson and Child showed that if the tissues of a living sponge or a hydra or crushed a pulp, passed through the fine filter, and the pulp is then poured into water and disassociated cells will soon begin to associate, to aggregate first into flat sheets, then round up into a sphere, differentiate progressively, and end up as an adult individuals with characteristic mouth, tentacles, and so forth. Dunbar. More recently, P. Weiss and his associates have demonstrated that the developing organs and animal embryos are also capable, just like sponges, of reforming, after having been pulped. Weiss and James cut into bits of tissue from 8 to 14 day old chick embryos, minced and filtered the tissues through nylon sheets, recompacted them by centrifuging, and transplanted them to the membrane of another growing embryo. After 9 days, the scrambled liver cells had started forming a liver, the kidney cells a kidney, the skin cells deformed feathers. More than that, the experimenters were also able to produce normal embryonic kidneys by mincing, pooling, and scrambling kidney tissues from several different embryos. The holistic properties of these tissues survive not only disintegration, but also fusion. Fusion can even be induced between different species. Thus, Speeman combined two half-newt embryos in their early gastrular stage, one a striped newt, the other a crested newt. The result was a well-formed animal, one side striped, the other crested. Even more spooky are recent experiments by Professor Harris at Oxford who developed a technique for making human cells fuse with mouse cells. During mitosis, 
The cell nuclei of man and mouse also fused, and the two sets of chromosomes were found to be growing and multiplying quite happily within the same nuclear membrane. Such phenomena, one commenter wrote, will surely affect our concept of organism in some degree. There are obviously sufficient possibilities along these lines to encourage or terrify everyone for some time to come. Pollock. In the light of such experimental data, the homely concept of the individual vanishes in the mist. If the crushed and reformed sponge possesses individuality, so does the embryonic kidney, from organelles to organs, from organisms living in symbiosis to societies with more complex forms of interdependence, we nowhere find completely self-contained wholes, only holons, double-faced entities which display the characteristics of both independent units and of interdependent parts. In the previous pages I have emphasized the phenomena of interdependence and partnership, the integrative potential of holons to behave as parts of a more complex whole. The other side of the story reveals instead of cooperation, competition between the parts of the whole, reflecting the self-assertive tendency of holons on every level. Even plants, which are mostly green and not red in tooth and claw, compete for light, water, and soil. Animal species compete with each other for ecological niches. Predator and prey compete for survival. Within each species, there is competition for territory, food, mates, and dominance. There is also less obvious competition between holons, within the organism in times of stress, when the exposed or traumatized parts tend to assert themselves to the detriment of the whole. The pathology of hierarchic disorder will be discussed in part three. Under normal conditions, however, when the organism or body social is functioning steadily, integrative and self-assertive tendencies are in a state of dynamic equilibrium, symbolized by Janus Particulus, the opener with a key in his left hand, and Janus Clusius, the closer, jealous guardian of the gate, the staff in his right. To sum up, stable inorganic systems from atoms to galaxies display hockic order. The atom itself, formerly thought of as an indivisible unit, is a holon, and the rules which govern the interactions of subnuclear particles are not the same rules that govern the interactions between atoms as wholes. The living organism is not a mosaic aggregate of elementary physico-chemical processes, but a hierarchy of parts within parts in which each holon from the subcellular organelles upward, it's a closely integrated structure equipped with self-regulatory devices and enjoys a degree of self-government. Transplant surgery and experimental embryology provide striking illustrations for the autonomy of organismic holons. The integrative powers of life are manifested in the phenomena of symbiosis between organelles, in the varied forms of partnership within the same species or between different species, in the phenomena of regeneration in lower species, of complete individuals from their fragments, in the reformation of scrambled embryonic organs, etc. Self-assertive tendency is equally ubiquitous in the competitive struggle for life.